Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Whit, Associate Professor of Strategy and the War Room Podcast Editor here at the Army War College. Thanks for joining us today. International students and faculty are really integral parts of the War College and the experience and life here in Carlisle. And each year, um, the Kermit Roosevelt Exchange Lecture Series between the United States and the United Kingdom, along with many other events throughout the year, promotes broadened perspectives and deepened connections among allies and partners. The exchange began in 1947 and continues today. This year, we in the United States are pleased to welcome General Sir Mark Carlton Smith as the 73rd Kermit Roosevelt Lecturer. He currently serves as the Chief of the General Staff, a post he assumed in June 2018. Since his commissioning in the Irish Guards in 1982, he has seen operational assignments in Northern Ireland, Iraq during the first Gulf War, Bosnia, Kosovo, Iraq again, and Afghanistan. Before his appointment as the Chief of the General Staff, he served as the Director of Strategy at the Army Headquarters and then the Deputy Chief of the Defense Staff and Military Strategy and Operations. He is the 12th generation of commissioned service, an unbroken line that goes back to the English Civil War in 1642. So I'm really delighted to host him today on A Better Peace to discuss his perspectives on senior leadership, his experiences, and the challenges and opportunities of leading at the strategic level. Welcome to the War Room. Jackie, it's good to be here. Thank you very much indeed. Great. Thanks for making the uh, long trip across the ocean. Um, I'd like for you to start by telling us a little bit more about your background and the job that you currently hold. So I'm what's known in the UK as the Chief of the General Staff. That means that I'm the professional head of the British Army. I'm the 20th Chief of the General Staff. It was a job that up until the 1st of April 1964 had been known as the Chief of the Imperial General Staff. But it was judged in 1964 that we had already ceded our empire, probably to the United States. And this job title was now an anachronism. And so for the last 55 years, it's been the Chief of the General Staff. My own personal background is that I'm the eldest son of a general. As you intimated in your kind introduction, I'm the 12th in a line of 12 generations of unbroken military service and indeed contract my own family back to Guy de Carlton, who was one of William the Conqueror's knights who protected the left flank at the Battle of Hastings in 1066. (laughs) And he in recognition of his duty and his service, was granted lands in both England and Ireland, and he established our family in the United Kingdom. Great. So this is this is quite a different uh, story from many American military officers, even though we know in the United States the military is increasingly becoming a family business, but we have a ways to go before 12 generations. Um, in your current job, what would you say are your primary or main priorities that you have? I just divide the British Army really into two principal facets. One is the custodianship that's bestowed on me of the institution. 
And the second is the wider management and the application of the organization. And of course, our principal output today is operations and readiness for operations. And so I would spend my time thinking about the key priorities as they reflect on my vision for the Army and the strategy and the route that is going to take today's institution into a more uncertain and volatile future. I'm interested in the ethos, the spirit, and the doctrine that frames the manner in which the organization thinks and behaves. I'm interested in a living organism that has a sense of its own history and understands its route to the future. And I probably spend my time focusing on optimizing the force that we have today, mm -hmm. modernizing the force that we need for tomorrow, and transforming the associated capabilities and functions that that army will need to perform. It sounds like a lot of what you do is to balance the past, the historical legacy of the British Army, uh, the British military, the contemporary needs of that organization, but also the future needs of that organization. Um, how, do you, how do you balance the com maybe competing interests or tensions that you maybe find in those three things? I think the balance needs to be struck um, with respect to the tolerance, really, of the, the principal fabric of the army, and that's its people. And my line is that people are not just in the army. People are the army. And there's only so much dislocation and uncertainty that they can tolerate before one actually begins to undermine the stable platform that all organizations mm -hmm. need in order to be imaginative and innovative. And it becomes quickly quite corrosive. So it's judging that threshold. Sure. You spoke of innovation and imagination, um, and these seem like words that we have to pay attention to as the rate of technological change, the speed of change maybe seems to be increasing. How do you work with your subordinates, with the, with the people around you, to make sure that the British Army is keeping pace and staying relevant in today's environment? Well, I think you've used some interesting language there because I do think it is one of our strategic challenges to continue to explain the utility and the relevance of land capability and indeed armed force in a world where many of the risks are associated in the public mind with respects to cyber, for instance. And there is today in the United Kingdom still a deep-seated skepticism about the relative wisdom and advantage of intervention born of our experiences in both Iraq and Afghanistan. But I think to the bones of your specific question, innovation really is about setting the conditions to allow talent to emerge and bloom and to delegate sufficiently down to those levels of expertise and experience to enable them to imagine a different future, to experiment without fear of failure, and to be clear that they have access to the higher levels of the strategic leadership of the organization in order to get the brightest and the best ideas through mm -hmm. to the top. This sounds like I mean, it's at the heart, I think, of what strategists do, right? Imagine a future and then figure out how you can maybe get there. If you think about the strategic issues that you face or a strategic issue that you faced um, in, your, in your work recently, can you tell us with as much specificity as you'd like about how you approached that problem? 
I think when I've tackled, you know, the, the most acute strategic issues, probably the synchromesh that is the common thread that links them is the requirement to convert operational military success into political success at the grand strategic level. And it's probably been that signal failure in our enterprises in both Iraq and Afghanistan mm -hmm. before it. This is the $64,000 question, it seems. It, it is. Um, and much of this is about an understanding of political tolerance levels and the distinction between military risk and political risk. And they are different things for both respective audiences. And I think it's incumbent on today's military strategic leaders and the next generation to think harder about how we explain the relative ranges of potential courses of action and the associated risks in order to give confidence to our political masters mm -hmm. that power and hard power still has a fundamental and useful role to play in terms of international affairs. I also think that a challenge for future strategic leaders is to stay abreast of the permanent and escalating technical revolution. We don't under need to understand the detail, but we need to be able to imagine the range of possibilities that emerging mm -hmm. technology will offer. Great. I would like for you to think now about strategic leaders that you admire, um, historical, contemporary, military or civilian, who are the people you look to as role models or examples for the kind of work that you're endeavoring to do? Well, if, if you'll um, grant me the luxury of uh, selecting a Brit to start Sure. With, and it's quite difficult uh, for a senior uh, British general to overlook the, the fundamental and existential role that Winston Churchill played in the course of history through the 20th century. And the point is that in a long and well-lived life in which he made any number of mistakes and errors of judgment, he made the single big call correctly. And he made it against the prevailing weather. Mm -hmm. And that was the decision to fight and thereby secured the free world. And that probably is what distinguishes, you know, those strategic leaders who really need to join the pantheon of history is because they did it against the prevailing conditions of the moment rather than simply witnessing or participating them. If I now may turn to the United States, I think in the, in the same historical episode, the ability of General Eisenhower to corral the coalition that then successfully fought the Nazi regime to a conclusion in Western Europe and then set the conditions for the long-term containment of you know, an aggressively oriented Soviet Union is something that, of course, you know, is legion in our history. If there's a single strategic decision that I've often reflected on as, as being extraordinary, and which I highlighted actually during the Kermit Roosevelt lecture, it was your own president FDR's decision that having been attacked on his Pacific front at Pearl Harbor, he decided that actually his overriding 
strategic priority was going to be the Atlantic and Europe and in selecting the strategy of Germany first, right. and which that was again, an extraordinary. Against the prevailing sentiment in many ways, that's a political argument that was very difficult to make. Very difficult to make. Good. Let's think about, we've talked about senior leaders and very high-level leaders, but most of our students at the War College are going to retire as colonels. Uh, in the United States, we talk about that colonels run the army. Um, so if you would think about the colonels or their equivalents that you've worked with, what do you think it is that separates the very best ones from the rest? Self-confidence. And I think those that are abundantly comfortable in their own skin. And I think that manifests itself in a number of, of interesting and different ways. The firstly is the quality of their critical and independent thinking. You know, they, they will challenge. They're confident in their own opinions. They've anticipated sensibly. And they very quickly get to the crux of an issue. And they're not distracted by the morass of tedious technical detail that only serves to confuse an argument. And so they're very crisp and succinct in their explanation, resolving complex issues down to the core key essentials. They're imaginative in the manner in which they define the problem, and they're confident in delegating the execution of the solution to their subordinates. And I think there's also a common denominator amongst the very best that I've had the privilege to serve alongside, and that is that they've almost all got a fascinating and deep personal hinterland, be it intellectual, social, or otherwise. And they've developed through the course of their career a fascinating and interesting network of friends and colleagues, which serves to nourish and nurture their continued intellectual curiosity. Frankly, they are just good value and great fun to be around. One of my former office mates um, talks about the, the joy that it is to be a terminal colonel um, and how much more fun that is than some of the other ranks one might have. When you, when you know this is going to be the end of, of a career, it allows you some freedom. Um, he probably finds operate. it liberating. You're absolutely right. Yes, one, once one's <laughs> solved one's ambitions and one's conscience. She does, indeed. Um, if you reflect on your time as a field grade officer, what are the, what's one thing that you know now that you wish you had known then? This is an interesting and actually a difficult question to answer. I think in many respects it's that the range of strategic responsibilities that attract to the senior leadership of an army often revolve around setting the conditions for everybody else to succeed. And in my world now, that's about continuing to secure the license to operate for the British Army, which is both political, legal, and cultural. And that license to operate today is under challenge from a liberal democracy that is suffering the corrosive fatigue of intervention over the last 15 to 20 years. It's at threat from an inquiry and intrusive jurisdiction and a legal domain. And it's at some threat from a culture in a society that is increasingly risk averse. Mm -hmm. 
I think that's helpful information to think about, uh, again, for our students, for other people who are thinking about how they fit into this larger larger picture. Let me just add one thing, if I may, Jackie, to that. And that's just to reflect very briefly on the nature of political ambiguity and the associated expediency that falls from it. It is very difficult for today's generation of political leaders to be as clear in their priorities and their strategic vision as the military leadership would want and require of them. And therefore, it remains incumbent on us as senior military officers to support the political leadership in crystallizing and refining their interpretation of their strategic priorities. Absolutely. And this is something that has to be learned and probably practiced and gone back to over and over again. That civil-military relationship is so important. Um, one of the things we talk about at the War College is that it should be a year for people to reflect, to grow intellectually, personally, to develop the habits of mind and the personal habits that are required for leadership at, at ever-increasing levels um, of seniority. Would you, would you tell us about your own um, sort of time management and personal development um, is there a typical week for you? What do you do? There, there is no typical week, and, and if there were, it would be very dull. My team, on whom I'm entirely responsible for the management of my time and my program, try to ensure that our management of the diary reflects actually the priorities of any given week or month. I personally believe in the mantra that offices are not for sitting in. And as much of the preparation and the reading should and could be done in the quieter hours, and actually office time is best spent getting around, talking to people, ensuring people that understand one's vision and one's key priorities, and that they're getting on with executing them. And they're able to see the chief and to challenge him in terms of their understanding of those priorities uh, and to reflect together as a single team. I also think that there's a totemic and iconic responsibility that attracts to the office of the chief, and that is that our tribes, the regiments and the brigades and the divisions and the corps of the army, need to see their chieftain, mm -hmm. and he needs to be out on that shop floor. Very good. Are there things um, that you are reading now or that you have read recently that you might recommend um, to our audience or for that matter have listened to or watched? Right now, uh, if you were to unpack my bedside table, there, there is one particular brick which I picked up here in the United States on holiday last summer when I had 10 days on the Connecticut coast and it was Robert Gates's memoirs mm. as Secretary of State for Defense. It's called Duty. And in amazingly compelling and colorful fashion, he explains the challenges, the demands, the sacrifices, the stresses, and the pleasures associated with that strategic responsibility that he discharged on behalf of your nation at its most critical time of war. It's a long book, it's a deep book, but it gives and gives. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm rereading it this year in the role as Chief of the General Staff. I don't like to have you know, an exclusive focus on military and security issues alone, um, 
I'm keen on political biographies and history, but I actually like to read contemporary fiction as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm rereading my favorite canon of thrillers, which is by John le Carre. Okay. And at the moment, I'm in the marvelous middle edition of the Carla Trinity, which is the honorable schoolboy. I recommend it to everybody who likes a spy thriller. Very good. And who doesn't like a spy thriller? Um, I will... Those are all the questions I have, but I will let you have the, the last word. Are there final thoughts or a bit of parting wisdom that you'd like to leave with our students or our audience or my mother if she's listening? Well, I would simply say to those uh, who are listening in that the profession of arms is an honorable and vital responsibility and that we are the custodians of something exceptionally precious. It's not just our army but it's our nation's army. And our role fundamentally is to nurture and nourish the fighting spirit of today's young men and women, recognizing that it's our sole and singular responsibility to be prepared to fight and to win. And because the army consists fundamentally of people, we need to recognize that we're custodians of that jewel in the crown that is made of flesh and blood and beating hearts including those of all your listeners, Jackie. Great. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really appreciate you joining us on a cold and sort of windy Pennsylvania day. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And this is Jackie Witt signing off for The War Room. Thank you very much indeed, Jackie. It's been a great pleasure too. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.